Good morning. Happy Mother's Day, everyone. Happy Mother's Day. Have a seat if you would. And if you're one of the children, you've got a tough choice this morning. All right? Really good things are going to go on next door, as they always do. But you've got a mom that's probably going to stay in this room. And I don't know. Uh, it's yours to f- solve. You get to resolve what you're going to do. But make your choice now. And uh, there's great things back in the back. And a wonderful day to celebrate uh, as children do weekly here at Grace Point. And um, let me just uh, return to my prayer and tell you that I've, I've, um, I, I took some extra care today, Dad. And I think I'm looking at you, and I think you did too, uh, to dress up nice because my mom's no longer here. She's not as she normally is on a Mother's Day morning uh, sitting in the front row, but we're pretty sure she's watching which meant I couldn't uh, get too messy or, you know, uh, I, I needed to. Uh, and, Dad, I, I think the same speaks for uh, the nice outfit you're wearing here today. But um, I want to I take a second and honor. Uh, today is Mother's Day, right? And, uh, and it's, a, it's a special day um, where we're, we, we stop. We just sort of slow things down a little and we honor moms. And we, we want to bless moms. Uh, we want to pray for moms, and uh, I don't think that ever gets tired or old. I think it's one of those things where uh, it's kind of a thankless job. There's a blurry world we live in today, and sometimes we just need to hit the brakes and say, way to go, mom. Um, and uh, I, I, I know you know, uh, so I'll just address it up front. You know, today has special meaning for me. Because uh, it's the first time in uh, all my years that I haven't had my mother here to be able to um, to say things that I normally do each year, to tell her I love her, and to spend the day blessing her, um, and and um, recalling as we love to do. It's kind of a fun thing. In fact, I saw last year's card I gave her, and it was filled with memories. I like to do that, and I like to go back in time and recall those memories. I'll, I'll, I'll spare you of that, but um, this year as her son, um, I wondered, uh, I've never wondered this, but it makes sense when I tell you that I wondered what my mom um, might be saying about me uh, to people uh, that she is now seeing in heaven. And, um, and of course, she I, I thought right away she would say with a smile, well, he, he is my favorite child, and that would be, you know, just so you know. And, uh, and then she might add quickly that, of course, he's uh, the best preacher ever, you know, and, and I, you know, um, people would kind of roll their eyes because they know other good pre- preachers. But um, uh, I, I guess I, I want to say I think my mother would probably... Uh, in the good spirit of the McCrackens, uh, take a moment and tell stories of what I was like before I became her favorite. <laughs> and we, I've got a sermon to preach, so I can't go long on this for sure, but I could have. And um, I thought of a list of things that my mom um, might say uh, about me, might even be saying them today. She might say, you know, a three-year-old's voice, it is true, 
is louder than a crowded restaurant with 200 people in it. And she would tell the details of that story. Or she might say, you know, when you, um, <clears throat> when you hear the toilet flush and you hear those little words, uh-oh, it's already too late. Uh, <clears throat> and she might say, uh, Play-Doh and microwave should never be used in the same sentence, right? And again, tell her own uh, version of that. And she might throw in uh, the obvious, but uh, she had to see it herself. And that would be that um, super glue is really forever. Uh, <laughs> it really is. <laughs> and one of my favorite memories, um, marbles in a gas tank. Yeah, they, they, they really do make a lot of noise when you're driving around. They, they, they have that effect. And, uh, and what mom cannot tell, what my mom could tell, and that is, and this is in defense of me and other children in the world, uh, you know, there is an irresistible temptation in all of our homes. It's called the washer and dryer. Okay? You know, you go buy it, and it's at head height for a child when they're little. And uh, children bring in things from being outdoors all day long, right? Um, Roly-polies was one of them, I remember, uh, lots of them. And then, and then, of course, there's worms. When you dig up worms, what are you going to do with your worms? You're going to clean them up. They're dirty, right? So you put them in your pocket and you go, and, and then you, your mom discovers that the, the spin cycle on the washing machine um, actually does not clean the worms, but it makes them really dizzy, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and can I throw in my own? Uh, it also makes cats dizzy, but anyway, okay, so let's move on. So enough of that. I wanted to lighten the, the, the feel. I want you, um, if you're with your mom, here's the deal. Here's what I'd like you to do. Um, I want you to find a way. If you have a way to do so today, would you tell your mom that you love her? Just, just tell her and fill in the details and thank her for her life and her impact on your life, okay? Just, just do it and cry a tear along the way and that would be, that would be a good thing. But I, I also want to be realistic and I recognize that it's hard for some to do what I just suggested, okay? And I want to be uh, fair and say if it's hard for you or if it's hard for your mother, um, there's stuff in the way, and we don't need to go there right now. Whatever reason, we want you to know that we care about you here at Grace Point. If you're, if you're uh, joining us live stream this morning, this applies to you. When this service is over, we've taken the effort to uh, ask a few wise women, godly women, to just spend a few minutes in the prayer room. Uh, we have a prayer room, and next to it, room 102, and both of them will be open at the end of the service and we just want to invite you to come there. And, um, and for whatever reason, if you need prayer, you want to be with somebody that cares, that would be a great place for you to go. And online, you'll be prompted at the end to do the same. And people will be there uh, ready and willing to pray with you as well. So happy Mother's Day. And uh, let, me, um, let me take you to words that my mother heard me say, my father's heard me say, and frankly, if you've been a part of Grace Point for any length of time, you know this to be true. 
uh, words that are my favorite from Scripture. So favorite that they were uh, stenciled on the wall in my office for many, many years until the paint was kind of wearing out and we needed to change uh, the look in my office. But I still have it on uh, a granite chiseled uh, version of Romans 8.1, which simply reads, There is therefore now no condemnation among those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation among those who are in Christ Jesus. By the way, as a point of reference, Romans 8.1 comes right after what's before chapter 8. Chapter 7, right? That's a good answer. And do you know that that's the standout chapter in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul beat himself senseless? He knocked the scuffing out of himself for a continuous frustration he lived with. You know what that was? Self-condemnation. I blew it again. I don't measure up. What am I doing, I would say, as a pastor? Here, get somebody else up here that, that doesn't blow it. In the apostle's case, give somebody else this job because I've got stuff in my past. That's all condemnation stuff. He went on for a whole chapter saying, I set out to do good. I want it with all my heart. And I, eh, that's called choke. I don't get there. It doesn't turn out the way I wanted. The effect, he's, he's kicking dirt clods. He's beating himself up. So at the end of all of that, you'll read it. I know you will, Romans 7. But you'll come to chapter 8, verse 1, and you will say with fresh understanding, there is therefore now no condemnation. Can't say it without a smile. For those who are in Christ Jesus. I wish I could just finish the sermon right there and tell you that that won't be tested. But the devil guarantees it will be tested. And he, he's relentless in it. He's actually described this way in Revelation as the accuser of the brethren. Take that in right now, would you? If you had names, mine's Stephen Charles McCracken. Uh, nicknames, crack. I don't use that one much anymore, but, uh, you know, the cracker, or crack up, uh, McCrack, and all this. Uh, if the devil walked in here, this would not be a name he gave to himself. It would be a name that Jesus gave to him. John 8, we'll be there in a minute, was another name. He's called uh, a liar, but, but a super liar. He's called the father of all lies. So Revelation comes along and describes, in fact, the word, the name Satan means accuser in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Let me bring that into what I just said. That means that Satan's great goal, will you hear me right now? I wish I could see your faces without mask, and that'll happen soon, um, but but I wish you, I could see your smile. Do you, do you, here's the deal. Satan's great goal is to show you how worth, unworthy you are. Is to pile on every time you make a mistake and bring what happened in the past to the present 
in hopes that he can, say it with me, bury you in self-condemnation. And you know what? Here's the deal. Let's just be honest. He doesn't have to work very hard. I'm looking at a bunch of people that have fallen short. And you heard those words from somebody that leads the pack. Okay. Um, <clears throat> the Bible says there is no condemnation. Don't put an asterisk next to that, please. We're tempted to do that. And that's not what God has done. He says no condemnation is no condemnation. Um, well, that's true. My question this morning is what will it take for us to be convinced? Um, beware, even if you are convinced, the devil will not let it go. He, as I said, will beat you down with bad memories and moments. Uh, can I just take it out of theory for one more second? Two nights ago at 2.25 in the morning, I was doing what most people do, sleeping. And I woke up with a start, and, um, and I could not stop the vicious attack that, that was on. And it was all about stuff, not regrets. I don't live with a lot of regrets, just for the record. I don't, because I really believe Romans 8.1. But lots of moments memories that hurt me badly, that stung deeply. I've let them go. I've forgiven, but they're sometimes, well, 2.25 in the morning, Friday night, early Saturday morning. And it went on for over an hour from a guy who took all the scriptures I knew in the moment and gave it right back to the devil. Flee youthful lust, uh, uh, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. Um, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Guess where he was that night? So this is not just me making an impressive point with you. It's me bringing my reality in front of you. Um, I just have to say about the devil that night, I'm glad he isn't omniscient because there was a whole bunch more he could have brought up. All right. Um, today's moment with the master it involves obviously somebody that could have felt and in many ways did feel condemned in John chapter 8. If you've not turned there, would you do so uh, this morning? John chapter 8. Uh, is a moment where um, the person involved, a woman, uh, sinned big. She did. And went home without condemnation. That's a great, mix those two together, and I hope they'll come out clearly this morning. Uh, let me describe the setting. So Jesus in John 7, he's gone to Jerusalem, and he's secretly gone there for a celebration called the Festival of Booths, or Tabernacles. What that was is an annual rem remembrance of how God cared for his people as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. 
It's an annual celebration, and it continues to this day, this festival. So Jesus, we're told in chapter 7, went there uh, under the radar, we would say. Um, And halfway through this, it's a week-long celebration, Jesus goes to the temple. So he's no longer, I'm not sure if I would say hiding behind bushes, but he was, he was, um, he was laying low for the first half of the week. And then verse 14 tells us in chapter 7 that it was now halfway through the festival and Jesus got up and went to the temple courts and now he's going public. He begins to teach. Okay, so this is halfway through the week. And on the last day of the festival... Um, find your way to verse 37, okay? So verse 37, chapter 7, halfway or at the end of the festival, he stands up and, and, and delivers a powerful message. He cries out, in fact, we're told. On the last and the greatest day of the festival, he stands and says in a loud voice, Let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. He's, of course, goes on to, where it's it's explained that he's referring to the Holy Spirit who had not yet been given. That would come soon after Jesus' resurrection, about 40 days later in Pentecost in Jerusalem. So Jesus is saying this, but he's not at a whisper. He's telling everybody in the temple, This is a big deal. Um, Everyone who thirsts comes to me and drinks. Whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow. That applied to everybody, not a few on the platform or the front row. He's saying this to everybody, and it gets a reaction. The reaction is one that became fairly commonplace in the Gospels. It was a mixed crowd. It'd be like me saying something that you hadn't heard much before right now. And some would say, well, ah, really? Who says stuff like that? Others would say, no, it's Pastor Steve. He said it. You you can trust him. There was that kind of reaction in the crowd because Jesus was, in saying that, making offers that only Messiah could deliver on. So there's a divide In saying, they'll have these living waters. Uh, Some people thought, verse 40 tells us, he must be a prophet. Surely this man's a prophet. No one says that without some backing. And then there's others that actually went a step further in the next verse. No, no, no. He's more than a prophet. He's Messiah. He's the sent one from God. the The God in the flesh. Here he is. And then there were some who said in the very next verse no he can't be messiah because he just came from galilee remember they're down in jerusalem he came from galilee and isn't messiah supposed to come from south down in bethlehem well he did he was born there (laughs) and he had his headquarters for his ministry up in the north so he was in both places but he truly did come from bethlehem there was this mixed feeling we're told in verse 33 thus the people were divided Notice, because of Jesus. So the festival ends and Jesus returns to the east of the city, uh, just across the valley to his favorite place, I'm going to call it, the Mount of Olives. And he spends the night in the Mount of Olives. And then early the next morning at dawn, 
he returns across, walking west, to the temple. And he begins to teach again. And it's a sermon that he teaches that has our attention this morning in chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. A quick point of note, most Bibles place this in italics. Uh, maybe yours does, the translation you're working with. Um, there's, there's, uh, this has been located in various places in the Gospels, part or all of this story involving this sinning woman. Uh, but most people agree that it's actually legit, a true story. It made the canon, we would say. It, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's God-breathed. But the location of where it fits is somewhat in question. That's why it's in italics here for most of us in our Bibles. I think it actually flows very well here uh, for reasons that I've kind of captured a little bit, and you'll see a little bit more now. So in this morning, he's preaching this sermon, and um, look at how actually verse 53 ends chapter 7. They all went home. Jesus then went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appears again in the temple court, where all of the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. That was customary. There would be perhaps standing room only in this gathering, and he would be the one sitting. And the, the rabbis of that day, it was, uh, it was the position that they took. And he begins to, begins to teach in the temple. As his sermon is underway, you've got to imagine me right now, uh, only it's earlier in the sermon. And as it's underway, a commotion suddenly erupts. And it is a commotion of the size that sucks the oxygen out of the room. Verse 3. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, mid-sentence, folks, brought a woman caught into, in, in adultery into the gathering. And they made her stand before the group. Now, no one's gotten up and made a commotion right now. But I got to stop and tell you as a pastor, as a, as a person who's stood in settings like this for 41 years now, big, many, many of them bigger, some smaller, um, you learn early on in that work that you better be prepared for disruption. And so I remember preaching early on uh, four decades ago. It wasn't a sermon worth listening to, so don't try to find it, okay? It's not out there. So I remember preaching, and I remember a child, a little, little person, um, fussing, just kind of, you know, being a child. I had three, so I came to understand that. But I remember not being irritated at that, but be, being distracted by that. It, it tripped me up. It I, I lost my place. I forgot where we were. It was so new for me because I was used to quiet, pay attention, eye contact, you know, all that stuff. So I remember early on a, a child, that was enough to disrupt. And then um, I, I, I discovered that you better be prepared for things like medical emergencies because they happen or psychological ones. They're even more sort of um, uh, surprising and, and you wonder, what are we supposed to do? And you realize you better have a plan in place. You better, uh, as the one 
that people are watching, you better be prepared. I know I'm setting myself up for a big problem right now, okay? I realize that. Um, but there were, there were hecklers. Yeah. And they're no fun for politicians. They're deserved some of the time. But anyway, they're, they're, but they're no fun for preachers either. Somebody doesn't like what you're saying or doesn't believe the Bible that you're preaching from. Today, there's very little restraint. Another disruption, right? Or here's one that's, uh, I can tell you, I, I lived through this a number of times. Somebody with a contrary spirit. It was not, this was not psychological, this was not physical. This was a spirit of darkness. And all of those things, I've had, a, I've had moments with all of those. But, but never, not once have I encountered a commotion of this kind. You're all dressed. What would it do to us in this moment? What would it do to me if people drug a um, scantily dressed, if at all, person into this setting and stood, in this case, her, in front of us? You know that um, it was a commercial that said, want to get away? That would have been it. That would have been it for me. Want to get away. So let's, let's stop for a second. And who are these people? Who are the people that would do this? And, and, and why would they do such a thing? Well, we're told that they are teachers of the law. See how verse 3 goes? Teachers of the law and Pharisees. They are scribes. They're known in other sections of Scripture, the Gospels. Scribes and Pharisees. They were the spiritual leaders Yes, I just said that. They are the religious leaders of the day. And they felt their authority had been threatened by Jesus. This is an ongoing beef they had with him. He was drawing attention away from them. Their lock on power was, was slipping away. These are the same ones that Jesus will go in Matthew 23 to call them out and say, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're phony. You don't, you, you're not the real deal. This will go on seven times in Matthew chapter 23. Check it out. You'll see. So Jesus is soaring in his popularity, and their popularity was sinking like a rock thrown out on a lake. Um, making this moment a perfect trap to take Jesus down. So the bait they used is a woman dragged into this gathering, um, having just been caught in the very act of committing adultery. It's everything your brain tries to not imagine. And she's now in front of all these people. Um, tell you the honest truth, verse 4 is so awkward and so shaming and so humiliating. 
that I'm, I'm, I've always been tempted to just kind of leap over it and move on. But they make her stand, look at these words, before the group. I've spent enough time imagining that moment, and I'm quite certain she would have done anything but stand if she had a chance. And they say to Jesus, Jesus, this woman was, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded that such a, such a crime should be handled this way. He commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Um, I probably read it still too fast for you to catch it if you're not familiar with this story. But did you notice the huge mistake that they had made? I'm getting answers. I just can't hear the answers. So maybe I'll, I'll say something and you'll go, wow, that's insightful. And you'll give me credit instead of them. But anyway, here's the deal. Um, the huge mistake, the law, these law guys that they point to when they say, look, um, this woman caught in the act of adultery, Moses commands in the law to stone her to death. That very law they violated in only bringing her to this place. If you knew the Bible in that day, the law, you'd have gone, where is he? I see she, but where's he? Where? Uh, listen to Deuteronomy 22:22. If a man, this is the law that they're referring to, if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the, he calls it what it is, adultery, evil. You must purge the evil from Israel. That's hardcore, but it involves not one, but two people. Do you want to guess where the man is? I don't know. I, I thought maybe he's big enough to say, you're not going to mess with me and pushes him away. Or maybe he was fast enough, caught in this moment, he just takes off and they, no one could keep up with him. I don't know, but perhaps one of those. Or perhaps they didn't have any plan to stop him because they had her. And if we believe that their purpose was to take him down, they had all the bait they needed. The dilemma that they were trying to put Jesus in the middle of is that if he upheld the law, because it was a, it, it's stated in the law, uh, to stone her, then he could be called by people that had heard him talk about loving and forgiving. Uh, he could be called heartless. You're not loving? Or, or on the other side of it, if he were lenient, that's, that's the other horn of the dilemma, right? If you're, if you're lenient and Jesus said something like, hey, give her a break, or hey, you know, everybody has a bad day, or whatever, you know, give her a second chance, then what, what criticism would he face then? Wait a minute, what about the law? What, you're going soft on sin, Jesus. 
Um, But Jesus didn't bite the bait. They pushed hard for him to do so. Um, And I want to just note in passing that it's reported that Jesus, before he says a word, stoops down and draws something on the ground. Um, They were dirt floors in those days. And and we're told it happened twice, once in verse 6 and once in verse 8. He bent down. And he started to write on the ground with his finger, we're told, verse 6. And again, he stooped down and wrote some more on the ground, verse 8. I'm not prepared to tell you what he wrote. No one can. But I will join those, and there are many, who have speculated. What was it? What do you think it was that he wrote on the ground? Their question hung in the air. Shall we stone her? The law of Moses says so. Without saying a word, he's on the ground writing with a finger. A.W. Pink, who's a theologian, pretty legit guy, um, he, he believes that his writing twice, verse 6, verse 8, is actually a reference to the two tablets of Moses. And then he quotes Exodus 31 verse 18, which reads this, when the Lord finished speaking with Moses, remember on Sinai, he gave him the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant written by the finger of God. So it's not just a reach. Pink had another place in the Bible to point to. Another uh, view is that it's a reference to Jeremiah, suggests that um, These words were being lived out in front of them. Jeremiah 17, verse 13, that says, Lord, you're the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. We're not told this, but maybe Jesus was thinking of these guys that brought her in. Those who turn away from you will be ridden in the dust of the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. And living water's present in this passage. I, um, I have my own view, and it's, it's more silly, but it's, it makes sense. I, I, uh, I wonder if, uh, you remember from college you had uh, on an exam, there's true and false, there's multiple choice, and then there's those, sometimes there are really clever questions on an exam that would, that would have um, facts over here and you're supposed to connect them with lines to another set of facts over here. And I wondered if Jesus had two columns set up, like, and, and on one side he had laws, like, you know, do not commit adultery, do not steal, don't, uh, you know, lie, don't, don't cheat or steal or run with girls that do, or something like that, whatever, uh, you know, all the, the, the law, right? And then over here is the names, in this column of different guys, maybe the ones that brought her in. And he's drawn lines. <laughs> Doesn't take long to get nervous in that moment, does it? I don't know. I, I, I'm just guessing. But whatever it was, we know that in the midst of this, Jesus does break the silence. Don't miss verse 7 or we miss a really astounding statement. 
Verse 7, let any of you who is without sin be the first to carry out the condemnation, to throw a stone at this woman. There's silence here, and I'm absolutely certain of a silence there. And people were avoiding eye contact. And there was this really awkward moment. And then after writing again, uh, we're, we're told this little detail. At this, verse 9, those who heard the question, let him who's without sin or the statement cast the first stone. Jesus goes back to drawing on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. And this interesting statement, the older one first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Ken Geyer, the author of the book that inspired this series, Mo um, Moments with the Savior, he, um, he guesses perhaps, perhaps, because they were the wisest or the guiltiest. They went, oh, time to go. And they walk away. Maybe, but here's the deal, writes Geyer. Listen to this, because this is true. The only one qualified to condemn this woman doesn't. Raising an important, important question. That's the takeaway today. What's it take for Jesus to choose mercy over judgment? Apparently, not much. I think you would have to agree. Not, not much. This woman said nothing in her defense. Not a single word spoken by her, not a single plea for a pass. You do not find it here or anywhere else, a, a sorry or I, I please forgive me or I promise, promise, promise I'll never do it again. None of that. I presume her head is hanging in shame and she covers herself in this horrible moment. But her silent shame is all we see, isn't it? So, to my point, it doesn't take much to move Jesus from judgment to mercy. James 2.13 tells us that. It's a priority of God's. And here's another. Remember the thief on the cross next to Jesus? It took nine words to change judgment to mercy for him. Nine words. That's all he said, all that's recorded. Just remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, done. Or remember the badly broken man that came into a church gathering, a temple in those days? And he was so self deprecating that he wouldn't even look up. I love this story, Luke 18, verse 13. It only took seven words for me. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. 
any. And the answer came back, you got it, man. People, we must not add to this. The temptation is great that we do so. Um, Jesus forgives freely and quickly and completely. My favorite analogy of forgiveness is she had a mess and it was written on this tablet. This tablet has to, happens to be an ancient etch-a-sketch. There it is. Committed adultery. Uh, didn't get away with it. And Jesus says, give me that tablet. gone it's gone he forgives fully he forgives completely not partially so much of the bible agrees with this psalm just write these down they're at the bottom i think he removes our transgressions from us psalm 103 he does that isaiah 43 verse 25 he blots out our transgressions not sort of fully um, Jeremiah joins in chapter 31 verse 34 he remembers your sins no more God's forgetful no no he knew what you did but he will never bring it up and rub your nose in it to remind you of what you did that's he saves us not because of good things we've done says Titus chapter 3 verse 3 but because of his mercy. This, this moment with the master comes to a life-giving, life-changing conclusion when Jesus is the only one with this woman standing next to her. And, and, and he asks her the question, has, has no one condemned you? Where are these guys? Almost makes me think Jesus really, after writing, never looked up. I don't know. But he asked, hey, where'd they go? Has no one condemned you? Her simple words, no one, sir. Verse 11. And then Jesus expresses words that every condemned sinner longs to hear. Then neither do I condemn you? Now go your way and sin no more. Stop sinning. Stop sinning. Stop sinning. I'd like you to bow with me this morning and, um, <clears throat> there is a a book that uh, John Moore recently has reintroduced to me. I, I was around it a lot for a lot of years. Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan, who describes a battle. I think the invisible battle of what we're reading about here today. Just listen to this. It's a battle between the accuser referred to as Apollyon in Revelation chapter 9, verse 11, and Christian, 
And the battle takes place in the Valley of Humiliation. One of Apollyon's ploys is to recite a laundry list, and it's long, of Christians' failures. That happened to me the other night. I told you about it, didn't I? A laundry list, and Christians' response in that moment to the accuser is full of humility. That's when he said this, all that you are saying is true and much more that you have left out. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. These infirmities that I have grown under and been sorry for have all of them been pardoned by my prince. At that moment, Apollyon flew into a rage because Satan cannot, cannot stomach the fact that his accusations uh, are overcome by the grace of God, by the mercy of Jesus. But they are. Indeed, there is therefore now no condemnation among those who are in Christ Jesus. Quit staring at the exception in your life. God, we come to you today realizing that we are condemned as sinners. Condemnation abounds for sinners of every stripe because you've said in Romans 3, all have sinned. But sinners who take cover under the pardoning blood of your son Jesus can say along with this woman and all pardoned people, Those whom the Son has set free are free indeed. If you've never made a move to Jesus' offer, he's made the first move. He came for you. He loves you. He died for you knowing that you would be condemned without that, without what he did for you. But in dying for you, he took the condemnation upon himself. Because the Bible reports the Father made Jesus who knew no sin to be condemned, covered in my sin, so that I might become something I can't be on my own, forgiven because of Jesus. We sing now to that truth. You need to respond to Jesus. Make this the day that you do and tell us about it. We want to pray with you. Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? I was lost, but he brought me in. Oh, his love for me. Free at last, he has ransomed me. His grace runs deep. While I was a slave of sin, Jesus died for me. Yes, he died for me. Let's respond and worship to him now.